I'm going to invite my fellow elder Greg forward, and he's going to be sharing the word with us. I guess this is a yearly tradition now on this Sunday. I'm just so thankful for him uh, stepping in and, and for for Jesus' word he has to share with us. So, Heavenly Father, I pray for Greg. Bless him, Lord. Fill him with your spirit. Let the word that you've given him uh, be a salve to our souls, Lord, and be an inspiration to our faith. Um, draw us near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. I actually don't remember being up here last year, so this all seems new to me. I'm just afraid I did the same thing last year, and now I'm just going to repeat myself. Uh, I actually, before I get started here, I do have a, a faith story, but I knew I was coming up here, so I didn't volunteer when we were doing faith stories. But I just wanted to just mention real quick, um, many of you know that I have been teaching the high school class for the last couple of years, and I want to send a message to the parents here that we have an amazing group of young men and women. And it's really been an honor to teach those kids, young adults, in class and sort of interact with them as, as they, they grow. And, you know, I know that I don't have to deal with the attitudes and I know I don't have to deal with them having to clean their room, but I know that the parents of this group right here should be very proud of their, their kids. They're, they're an amazing, wonderful group of kids. I, I see a lot going on with them. They ask a lot of questions. They're very respectful to me, whatever they are at home, I don't know, but they're very respectful to me. And I just wanted to say thank you to the parents here uh, for letting me be a part of their life. It's truly an honor to be with them uh, every other week or so. So the message today is, I think I'm going to call it, more than the nativity. But before I do that, I want to just mention that sometimes some people have mentioned to me that I can be a little grinchy. And... You may not know me well enough to know this, but I, I do have to admit I am not a big fan of the Hallmark Channel. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the 80% off sales. I'm not a fan of the crowds. I'm not a fan of the anxiety of the rush that Heather mentioned while she was up here of the season. So for me, Christmas being one week away is not something that I'm like super thrilled about. I'm excited about the Bible story. I like that. But I'm, I've been known as a Grinch, and there's a rumor, I don't know if it's true, that there are some people who won't come near me, even with a 39 and a half foot pole. However, we have a message to get to. And I'm going to read today, we're going to, we're going to do, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to do Matt, the birth narrative is what we're going to talk about. And that's Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. So you'll forgive me, we're going to do a little bit of reading today as you guys grab your Bibles or pull it up on your phone. We're going to take a look at this story in relation to what the nativity scene typically gives us, right? The nativity scene gives us the animals and the three wise men and the shepherds and all that. It's great. It's a wonderful depiction, very peaceful depiction for us to consider. But I, I think there's more to it than that. You see, these birth narratives, they have real people. It's a real place and a real time. And it gives us real lessons for us to live our lives. 
So let's start here. Matthew chapter 2, if you want to read along, or if you're not reading along, I'll just read it for you. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, may, I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Flipping over to Luke 2 now. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So I know there's a little bit more to the birth story. We have the angel, of course, appearing to Mary, the angel appearing to Zechariah, the, the angel appearing to Joseph. We have all those other things. But just in these two sections that we've read, the story of the birth of Jesus, we have some, some real people, real fulfillment of prophecy, a real time and location. 
The fulfillment of prophecy we can see in, in, uh, at the location of where Jesus will be born in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. It's Bethlehem that's going to be the place. And then the timing, I don't have the time to go over it now, but if you want, look at the prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Do the math, and you can figure out how accurate that is. Also in Numbers 24, 17, there's a prophecy of Balaam about the star of Jacob. It all comes together. It's all to fulfill prophecy. And Bethlehem's a real place, right? It's a small town. Like, we, we think of small towns as, you know, whatever towns around here you think are small. Bethlehem at this time had about 100 people in it. And that's it. Nazareth was not much bigger, maybe 120, about five miles south of, of Jerusalem. 90 miles it takes Joseph and Mary to get there. And one of the interesting things, I know we, you know, at least I'm interested in sort of the apologetics of how we know this is true and, and what is amazing about this Bible. When we, taught, when we read in Luke 2, uh, chapter 2, section, or, uh, verse 4, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. It's south. We usually think down, but it's actually an elevation change of about 1,300 feet. So they're literally going up. And it's right here in our Bible that tells us what it was. We have some real people here. We have Joseph and Mary, of course. The parents, or step-parents, we would say. Joseph's a step-parent. Mary is, of course, the mother of Jesus, right? Oh, boy. But they're real people. We don't know a lot about them. You know, you would think the mother and stepfather of our Lord and Savior, we would know a whole lot, but when you think about it, how much do we really know about Joseph? I mean, he is a carpenter, right? We know that. We know he's from Nazareth and from the line of David. But what else do we know? I mean, he disappears from the Bible pretty quickly. And most scholars believe that that's because he passed away before Jesus began his ministry. That's why we don't read about him. But we really don't know a lot about him. And even Mary, the mother of God, how much do we know about her? Just a young girl living in Nazareth, right? Has the angel come to her? We know she doesn't object. She just says, I am your servant. Do with me what you need. We do see Mary, though. She's at the birth. She's at the first miracle. She's at the cross. But we don't really know a lot about her. And then we have these magi from the east. Now, we say three kings, but it's unlikely that they were just three royal men coming from the east. They would have had a whole baggage train with them, right? And the only reason we say three is because there's only three gifts mentioned, right? There could have been a whole lot more. But in any event, we have these three kings, magi, which are really probably more astrologers or high priests or, or something like that. Now, they're from the east, which is Babylon or, or Persia in that area, and we know that the Jews had been exiled to Babylon, so these three magi, when they mentioned this star, it's likely that they knew of the prophecy in Numbers. That's how they knew there, there was a star coming to follow it. This thing's hyperlinked like you wouldn't believe. 
And then we have some shepherds. They're just out in the field doing their business. And then an angel shows up. And they decide to go check it out. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their names. We know they're not hanging out in, 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 in palaces. They're just doing their job, being shepherds. A respected position, though, of course, Saul, Moses, David, all shepherds. But we don't know anything about these guys. And then we have King Herod. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. This isn't Herod Antipas who beheads John the Baptist. It's his father. It's not Herod Agrippa I who kills the apostle James, making him the first martyr, the first apostle who's martyred. He also throws Peter in prison. He's not Herod Antipas II who saves Paul from the Jews and lets him uh, witness to those in the court. This is King Herod, the client king of the Roman authorities. He's one of the most infamous rulers in history. Some people say that you can't trust the Bible because there's no other place where we hear about the murder of all these babies in Bethlehem. We think about who King Herod is. He did kill 46 Sanhedrin. We know that for sure. He killed his brother-in-law and his mother-in-law. He killed two of his own sons and his wife. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. In fact, it fits with his personality that he would do such a thing as kill all of the kids, all of the boys in Bethlehem to save his own kingdom. And then there's somebody in this story we don't really think about, and that's Caesar Augustus. He's mentioned as the Roman emperor who orders the census so that he can tax everybody properly. He's the first Roman emperor. His real name isn't Augustus. Augustus means exalted or, or venerable or majestic. His real name is Octavius, which means eighth. So if you're going to be the emperor, change your name to something that sounds like that. Don't call yourself the eighth. But in all of these people, we see some real lessons for us. We see real obedience. Joseph didn't have to keep Mary as his wife. In the custom of the day, he could have easily divorced her, and it says that he was going to quietly divorce her. He's not trying to make a big deal of this. He's just going to step away. And yet, God tells him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so what does he do? He obeys. And we see Mary, right? She doesn't make the mistake that Moses does or some of the other people where... Zechariah where they disbelieve and say no no angel you got it wrong she says look I, I don't know how you're going to do it I have not had sex with anybody and the angel says don't worry we've got that covered and she says I am your servant that's real obedience and we can learn that from these two Mary says in, in Luke chapter 1 verse 38 I am the Lord's servant may your word to me be fulfilled But that's not all, right? We have the three wise men, the Magi. They show up, and their earthly ruler tells them, hey, find out where Jesus is and come back and tell me. But they hear from God, and God says, don't do that. And what do they do? They head out the back door. That's real obedience on the part of maybe people who probably shouldn't even been there, as we'll get to that in a second. 
And we have this angel come down. And in this birth story, we have a number of times where the angel is telling all of these real people, do not be afraid. He tells Zechariah, do not be afraid. He tells Mary, do not be afraid. He tells Joseph, do not be afraid. He tells the shepherds, do not be afraid. And then after that, they all obey. And by obeying, they get to be a part of this thing that God is doing on earth by just obeying. At the moment, I doubt any of them really knew, except perhaps Mary, what exactly they were doing. And yet God says, do not be afraid, just obey. And the ones that do get to be a part of this amazing, wonderful story that we have that saves all of humanity. There's real humility here. Right? The term major, manger, or feeding trough is where Mary places Jesus after she swaddles him in the clothes. Now, we didn't read that. I think swaddling is in the King James, but nobody says that anymore, so I think our translators try to make it more palatable for our modern English ears. Right? But here's Mary placing Jesus, the birth of our Savior, the world's Savior and King, into a feeding trough. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I've been to farms. I don't know if any of you get the impression that I get of what a feeding trough actually looks like. It seems to me to be disgusting. And yet, here is our Lord and Savior at the very moment of his birth, at the very start. What other humbling location can he be placed in to start saving the world than a feeding trough? Maybe there's a compost pile. Could be worse, but I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty low. Right? There's no team of doctors or sterile equipment. It's, in my envisioning, it, it's got to be a mess. And from this humble beginning, we have the birth of our Savior. And you notice Jesus doesn't ever get out of those humble surroundings. He'll teach in the synagogue. He'll go to the temple. But where do we see him spending his time? In the houses of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And then he ends up where? On a rough wooden cross. He never gets out of those humble surroundings, it would appear to me. I think of our own humble surroundings. most beautiful, loving God that we can ever think of starts in those very humble surroundings. He's surrounded by ordinary men and women. Some ordinary dudes out doing whatever shepherders do with their sheep. We've got Magi from the east coming now. They're astro- They're known as astrologers, and astrologer being a form of divination is not welcome in the Jewish community. Why do they get to come? I wonder if the lesson for us is that everyone can come. Magi can come. They would normally be excluded. They can come. Shepherds, they're normally excluded. They get to. I don't have to tell you that that goes on 
for the rest of the New Testament and beyond for us today. We see Herod and Caesar. These are powerful men. Right? How powerful do you have to be to order the death of all children in a village? And then people will do it. You gotta be pretty powerful. And Caesar Augustus, I mean, how powerful do you have to be that you can command every single person in your kingdom? to go get counted so I can collect taxes from you. Right? How powerful must you be that you can order every single one of us in this room to go back to your hometown so that I can count you? You got to be powerful for that. And yet where are those where are their kingdoms today? It seems to me with all that power they would be able to withstand some little baby in a disgusting filthy trough. And yet they can't they're long gone in our king. These two powerful men are just pawns in God's plan. When we follow such powerful men, what do we get? We get worldly power too. We get worldly wealth. We get things. But when we follow that little baby in the manger, what do we get? Love, humility, service. We have to obey. Can we find that beauty in our own lives? Do we sometimes find ourselves in the feeding trough of our life? Some of us are struggling with all kinds of things today. Disappointment, sadness, loss. We're just, we're in the gutter of our life. But within that gutter, is there anything more beautiful or more loving than our Savior? There's a practical lesson. We can take that from our New Testament and we can put it into our lives today and we get the same answer that baby in the manger. They say our president is the most powerful man in the world. He's just a pawn in God's plan. When your guy wins, you're happy. When your guy loses, you've got four years of miserableness that you have to deal with. None of that matters, right? Because we have a baby whose kingdom is going to withstand all of them. No matter how many missiles or bombs, guns, or powerful we are. We can have all the money in the world. It's a manger that wins the day. God is our king, born in a manger. I don't know who else we're supposed to follow, but he's the one that's going to overcome them. From the lowest, sorriest place you can think of, he wins. As we think about this today, more than that nativity scene, not to get distracted with the three wise men, not to get distracted by having to buy so many presents, to remember that in our lowest point, our most humble, we are going to have a God that wins. That great contrast between those powerful men and that little helpless baby. That amazing power that they have versus this sorry state of a poor baby laid in a feeding trough. Our God gets to it. As we work through this next week, right? Work through our whatever we have going on, our sorrow, our loss, or whatever, or the anxiety we have coming up the next week. Let's just remember that this story is more than a nativity. And if we do, maybe our hearts will grow two sizes this day. I couldn't help myself. (laughs) Disperse and be the church.